0: This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning, scripture reading is from Second Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved father Paul wrote, also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. This is God's Word. You may be seated. This morning... I'd like to tell you a story of one of my heroes. And I want you to listen to all the obstacles he endured in starting a work in India. He went from being a shoemaker, or really a shoe repairman, to a Baptist minister. And when preaching through the book of Isaiah, he felt called to go to India and to to see the work of the gospel transform that country. And from that very moment, he received nothing but a cold reception from his church, his friend and peers. It took him years to create a network or a missions agency from which he could leverage to go to India. But the British East India Company, which had a monopoly in that country, with the conjunction of the British government, blocked every effort of his to go to India. Thankfully, there was a Dutch trading ship that was ported in London that was more than eager to take him to India. He, his wife, his four kids, one of which was a newborn, His ministry partner had unknowingly mismanaged most of their money, so when they arrived in India, they were immediately broke. He and his wife and his four kids, remember one's a newborn, lived in abject poverty. He had to work in a Dutch plantation with his hands to feed his family. Within the first year of his time in India, he had to move five times to find shelter. And what I mean by shelter, moving from one slum to another. Naturally, he and his family, mind you, a newborn, had malaria, dysentery, and other diseases regularly. He was dying for support and encouragement. He wrote letters for asking for prayer, and his first letter, he got 17 months into his time in India, was one of an older woman in his congregation chastising him for abandoning the gospel ministry and pursuing the work of a merchant. That was not what he was looking for. Two years later, his son died, one of his sons, of dysentery, which led to the nervous breakdown of his wife, which led to her insanity, where for the next 12 years, she constantly screamed at him in fits of jealous rage, tempting to take his life any time she had the opportunity to. Three years later, this is seven years into his time in India, he had his first convert whom he baptized. A year later, reinforcements arrived. These were marvelous men to aid and multiply his work, and he, within two years, only one of them remained alive. A few years later, his lovely but insane wife died. He remarries his equal, the very love of his life, only to see her a few years later die as well. And soon after the death of his second wife, his eldest son, his little pal, the most important person in his life, died as well. So imagine the effect. It would be like losing Kim and Jacob all within one year. And then at the height of his ministry, when he created created a tremendous amount of resources to propagate the gospel, a printing press, and all sorts of publications, a fire took out the warehouse and the printing press. And then towards the tail end of his time, when his missionary society, I guess, was working now, and he had success, a whole new crew of young men came to aid him in the work, but they didn't like their living accommodations, and they didn't like their salaries, so they slandered him and undercut his work and ministry. Now, for all these obstacles this one man faced, what do you think he accomplished in his 40 years in India? Let me give you a short list of some of the things he accomplished. He was a botanist. He published the first books on science and natural history in India. He's an industrialist. He introduced India to the steam engine. He's an economist. He introduced saving banks to India because he saw so much usury. He was a humanitarian. He was the first to campaign for humane treatment of lepers. He was a publisher. He was the father of print technology in India, both printing and publishing, and he created the first newspaper in an Asian language. He was an agriculturalist. He created a systematic survey of all the agriculture in India. He a translator and educator. He was the first to translate and publish in English all the great Indian classics. He wrote gospel ballads in Bengali. His work in Bengali was so significant, he led to making Bengali the foremost literary language of India, which it still remains today. He translated the Bible into six primary languages of India, and then he found 29 others he was able to translate the New Testament into. Early into his career, he became the professor of Bengali, Sanskrit, and Maratha in Fort William College, and that's how he paid his bills for the remainder of his time in India. He began over 100 schools for children of all castes in India, and he developed the first Asian college, which was open to the masses. I'm only half done. He was a library pioneer. He began the first lending library in India. He was a church planter. He started numerous churches in the state of Bengal and in 19 mission stations, meaning 19 places from which holistic work of the gospel propagated all over India. He was a forest conservationist, the first in India. He was the first man of note to be a woman's rights activist in India. Now, here's why this was important in his time. At that time, men ruled women through polygamy, female infanticide, child marriage, and forced illiteracy, all of which were sanctioned by the religion of that time. To combat that, he opened schools for girls. But the most horrific thing he experienced from his early days on in India was this practice of sati, which is widow-borning. Back in that culture, in that time, women would marry men much older than them, and naturally, those older men would die. And so the practices would have this huge cremation pierce. The man would be laid on it, who was dead, and his live wife would be put on top of it, and they would light it on fire. The first time he saw one, he tried to physically stop it, and the men in the village held him back. He was there cursing judgments upon them. God's going to judge you for this. And from that point on, he was incensed. This motivated him to translate every religious sacred text in India, no matter what the language, into English, so he could prove to every political and religious figure in India the Sati was not in their sacred literatures. And if you go back to history books, he is credited to single handedly for twenty five years battling against this pure evil. And he won. But I think what he's most known for is not all those things, but being an intellectual catalyst in India. The first Indian intellectual movement happened in the 19th century and was led by a man named Rajaram Mohan Roy. And he considered William Carey his best friend and credited William Carey to his development and the development of intellectual India. If you haven't figured it out by now, this man is William Carey. He's the father of modern missions. No matter whether you call yourself a follower of Jesus or not, we can all agree that this is one beautiful human being. And what he did for India is literally breathtaking. There's multiple universities named after him in the India, and he's revered. He is the greatest picture I know of someone constantly moving forward. He understood that no one's ever in neutral. You're always in motion. You're either moving forward or you're moving backwards. And when you stop... Just for a second, to glory in what you've accomplished, to take a break and chill out, to rest in your laurels, to take credit for the work God's done in you and get your identity in it, you're not doing a neutral activity in that moment, but rather you're actually moving backwards. So William Curry understood the gospel very well, that Jesus is at work in us right now, growing us. He knew that Jesus was working in him, alive and powerful and active in the Bible in him, pouring his merciful, loving grace into him and powerfully at work in the world through him. And Carrie wanted to be walking in the momentum, the power of that grace forward continuously. The passage we're looking at this morning, in this passage, Peter's inviting us to move forward in the gospel. Like William Carey, he understands that we are in constant motion. And he understands that if we're not moving forward, we're actually moving backward, which is a dangerous thing for moral and religious people that typically fill churches. These more remarks that we're looking at are the final remarks from Peter's final letter to the church. And see, in Second Peter as a whole, is he challenging the church to look at the coming of Christ to behold the glory of the new heavens and new earth, when earth and heaven collide and create something beautiful to inhabit. And he's encouraging them even now to watch God change the earth before them in their very works. So, as we look at the parting, last, final summary thoughts of Peter, the grandfather of the church, he's inviting the church to move forward and keep in step with our gracious God. This morning, we're going to briefly look at three things. Peter's calling us to move forward. By growing in godliness, growing in God's word, and growing in grace. So first, growing in godliness. If you look at verse 14, it starts out immediately with be diligent, the Greek word spadatso. It's to do something hurriedly, with intense effort. It's a pressing work to do now. It's a sharp and urgent duty. It's a command to carry out this action expediently and effectively. And this is what we like to do in our culture, do things expediently and effectively, And so what are we to be diligent to do? Look at verse 14 again. To be found by him, that's being Jesus, without spot or blemish and at peace. In Peter's first letter to the church, he describes Jesus as that lamb without blemish or spot, free from censure and irreproachable. It's a call to flawless integrity and uncompromising holiness. It's a call to Christlikeness. In essence, Peter is calling the church to godliness. Now, think about the gospel. The gospel is Jesus has invaded our lives, invaded your life with his grace. When you're an enmity to him, when you're unreconciled to him, when you're an enemy of his, he loved you and he just ramrodded himself into your life with his grace and his love. And from that point, he's been emanating in you. He's taken the wrath and judgment you deserve for all your past and present and future sins and absorbed it. In its place, he's given you his righteousness. He's given you his standing. And so when the Father looks at you, he sees Jesus and he signs, and he smiles and he says, This is my beloved child whom I love. He's given you the Holy Spirit to hold you. The third person of Trinity now resides within you, to change you, to remind you of Jesus, to point you of Jesus, to root you in the gospel, to convict your sin, to mold you, and to make you a new creation, to give you literally a new heart. No matter how much old you still see, you've become something brand new, and Jesus has made it his mission to make you like himself. He's in growing inside of you like a plant and organically slowly taking over, changing you bit by bit, helping you to reflect his glory and kindness. Jesus is constantly moving forward in you. Why? Because you are the object of his love and activity. He can't help it. He's united himself with you. You and him are one, and he will never let go, and this is the essence of the gospel in you. Peter understands there's no neutral in the Christian life. You're either moving forward with Jesus in the glorious work he's doing in your life or you're working against it. And therefore, Peter calls us to be diligent to grow in godliness. He's not inviting you to be good. He's not inviting you to perform. He's not inviting you to fake it. He's inviting you to see what Jesus is doing in you right now. He's inviting you to join what Jesus is already doing. To witness and experience God's present, saving, overwhelming, gracious activity in your life. Now, the problem is that we're all diligent and intense about the wrong sorts of activities, right? We're diligent. You're just not diligent about that. We're expedient and urgent about escaping our hardships, numbing ourselves, having fun experiences. I'm really guilty of that one. Building an image or reputation for us to present to others, checking out, admiring our productivity and success of our past, or cursing ourselves for not succeeding enough. Taking credit for the work of Jesus in our lives or living off the fumes of previous success of the past, which is now vacant and absent in our presence. We relish how nice and good and great we are, or we curse ourselves for not measuring up. We're expedient and urgent about being content with the little we God's already done in us, or we're expedient and urgent about demanding more of ourselves, cursing ourselves for not being better, for not being more superior. Now that's my list. What's yours? What are you urgent in? Either way, we miss out on the saving work of Jesus. Instead of moving forward with Jesus in his grace and humility, celebrating his literal presence in our lives, we often apply the brakes and confound his works. Peter wants you to have fresh experiences of God saving you and changing you. A few questions for you to explore. Where do you sense the Spirit of God telling you to be diligent? Where are you not irreproachable? Where does the power of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus seem hollow in your life? Where is God presently saving you? And how does he want you to join him? Jesus is growing in you right now godliness. He's inviting you to join him in that growth. And Peter's asking you, why settle for less? Why wait? Do everything you can to move forward in him, with him. And you will actually see him loving you, present tense, changing you, present tense, right now. Now, for us to move forward and grow in godliness, there's another type of growth that's more foundational. For us to continue to see where God's changing us and join him in it, we need to be not only growing how we use God's word, but how we allow God to use his word however he wishes in us. See, for us to grow in godliness, we must grow and God's word. Now, I love how Peter introduces this necessary pattern. Look at verses 15 and 16. Our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all the letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Now, at this point in the game in human history, all the letters that we have from Paul in the Bible, all 13 of them, have been written and sent out. Presumably, most of them have made their way to Peter. Peter is already in this verse passage recognizing the authority and power and the significance of Paul's writing. He's also recognizing, which is I find very helpful, that some of the things Paul writes are very hard to understand. Now, this makes sense. I have this experience every week when we do City Bible reading a Pauline letter. I'm like, Paul, I don't understand you. And I love what Peter's saying. He's like, you know, I'm an apostle and I have no idea what he just said there think about that. He was the main pastor and leader in the church of Rome when the letter to Romans was, res- was given to him. That letter was read in his presence, and I'm sure when Romans 9 and 10 showed up, he's like, man, I have no idea what Paul said right there. So this is Peter, the lead apostle to the Jews, the major leader of the church, an apostle with special authority and God given powers, a man who was inspired by the Holy Spirit himself to write letters that have been canonized in the word of God. And as he As he reads the inspired word of God, he writes that he needs the Holy Spirit to help him to understand it. Peter is modeling for us that even he needs to grow in God's word. That's helpful. That's very, very helpful. So how do we grow? Peter did not leave us unarmed. He said to take care. It's an imperative. There's an emphatic you in the Greek, meaning you, take care. The connotations are to watch out and to be on guard. But why do we need to take care? Look at verse six, verse 16. There are some things that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. The church of Jesus Christ has a history of men taking that which is difficult to understand the scripture and twisting it and distorting it and then confounding what's obvious in the scriptures for their own purposes and benefits. If that was true then, how much more is it true now? There's so much bad theology afoot everywhere, but here's the problem. There's a lot of it afoot in us as well, and it's important that we watch out, because if we don't watch out, look at verse 17, what will happen. We'll be carried away in error. We'll lose our own stability. Now, briefly, I want you to think of the forward momentum of the Scriptures in the Scriptures. 2 Timothy 3.16 talks about how all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So the very word of God emanates from the mouth of God and breathed out in directions for us to conform ourselves to. John tells us in chapter 2, verse 15, that the word of God abides in you. So the Word of God is breathed out from God and then takes residence within us and abides in us and grows in us. Paul in Ephesians 6.17 says, The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. So think about it. The Word of God is breathed out and it abides in us. And it's a weapon which the Holy Spirit wields within us. And then look at what the author of Hebrews tells us the Word of God does. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any edge or two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of the spirits and of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Again, the word of God is breathed out from the mouth of God. It abides in us. It's a weapon which the spirit moves actively in us, shaping us, changing us, conforming us, taking us places, which then the author of Acts said this, Luke, the word of God increased and multiplied. Do you see the beautiful momentum of the Scriptures? It's breathed out by God. It abides in us. It's a weapon which the Holy Spirit wields in us to actively take us places that is increased and multiplied and just goes somewhere. There's beautiful force and momentum in the Word of God. What are your expectations for the momentum and forward nature of the Word of God in your life? are you expecting the Word of God to cross you? Meaning, are you expecting it to correct you and rebuke you and train you in righteousness? Are you expecting the Word of God to abide in your thoughts and emotions? Are you expecting the Holy Spirit to powerfully use the Word of God for His purposes to grow you? Are you expecting the Holy Spirit to convict you and to make your sin more clear? Are you expecting the Word of God to showcase the beauty of Jesus and His power in your life? Are you expecting the Word of God to change you? And move you forward. A short vignette from the jazz trumpet prodigy Lonnie Hillard would probably help here. Young Lonnie had an amazing reputation. He was quickly growing his reputation being a fantastic trumpet player with great improv. Oh, he could improv- improvise really well. <clears throat> now he got his huge big break. Miles Davis, clearly one of the greatest Just jazz trumpeters of all time invited him to play with him. He knew that this was the opportunity he needed to catapult his career forward. Because if he could play with Miles Davis on the stage and hang with him just a little bit, he could go anywhere after that moment. So there it was, the night where Miles had his band assembled and Lonnie got to play with him. And within eight bars of the first song, Lonnie lost his place. For the rest of the song, he was off-key, unable to jam with the band, and he looked ridiculous on the stage. And when it was his opportunity to do his solo, he totally bombed it. He failed miserably. It was the most terrible and humiliating experience of his life. At the end of the concert, the wise old sage, Miles Davis, walked up to him and said, Hey, kid, you don't know your chords, do you? And Davis had nailed the problem. For all his skill, Lonnie didn't know the basics, his chords. Lyle thought that jazz was bending the rules, and he learned from Miles Davis that moment that jazz was mastering the basics. The only way you can soar and improvise is when you have the fundamentals down. And that's not only true of jazz music, but it's also true of the Christian life. If we want to move forward, to soar, to be creative, to be dynamic, to be free, we must master the most fundamentals of the Christian life. We must master our chords, and our most primary fundamental chord that we must master is experiencing God in His Word. Peter's inviting us to slow down, to learn to be rooted in God's words, so rooted in our experience of God and His Word that no one can pick us up and carry us away and take us away from Jesus. So rooted in our knowledge of Jesus in His Word that we never lose our stability, no matter how hard life gets. A few questions. Are you growing in God's Word? Have you slowed down long enough to master this most crucial fundamental? Do you study the Bible, standing over it, asking your observation, application, interpretation questions? Or does the Bible get to study you and take you somewhere as you are underneath it? A few simple directions. If you don't know how to do this, how to experience God in His Word, Please humble yourself and go to your home group leader if you're in a home group and ask for help. I don't think your home group leader would be excited about doing anything more in your life. If you're a home group leader and you don't know how to do this, it's all right. Please humble yourself and go to your discipleship group leader. There's nothing your discipleship leader would like to do more for you than help you to experience God and his word. If you're a discipleship group leader and you don't know how to do this, Please go to your elder. There's nothing your elder would like to do more than help you experiencing God and his word. And Ted, if me and you and Destin know how to do this, we're in trouble. <laughs> There's really nothing more important for us to do right now. City Bible reading and prayer journaling can be that life-changing tool where God propels us forward in his grace. Now, if we want to move forward and grow in Godless, we must move forward and grow in God's word. And if we want to grow in God's word, we must grow in grace. What I love about this passage is clear. Peter's not just inviting you to grow in the knowledge of Jesus, which he literally says, but he wants you to actually grow literally in his grace. Peter calls the church the beloved three times in this chapter. It's clear that for us to grow in grace, we remember who we are and what we have and where we're going, that we're deeply loved in the gospel. But what does that mean? Look back at our call to worship, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 and 21. As it's been stated and prayed over and over already in our worship service, we are a new creation. We have been made brand new. And Jesus is inviting us to treasure that reality that when we were dead to him, he made us alive. He gave us a new heart. He gave us new abilities to see him and enjoy him and live in him. And that newness will not dissipate or fade away, but grow and grow and grow. Because that newness has been initiated by the Holy Spirit himself. And he will win and conquer. But now we are a new creation, we've been reconciled to God. That long divide of hostility between us and God was slammed shut because Jesus was cut off that we might be brought near. Jesus was cursed so that we may experience all the blessings of God and the chief of those blessings that all of our sins, past, present, and future have been forgiven. And in the gospel, we see again from 2 Corinthians, now we're ambassadors of God. For some weird reason, Jesus thinks it's awesome that we get to represent him and be his pictures on world in the world. Like an ambassador represents his prime minister or his president, we get to represent our God in every way and speak for him and live for him in this world and create a beautiful, marvelous picture of the love of God loving sinners. And ultimately, in the gospel, you are righteous. All the standing and beauty, the resume of Jesus loving everyone perfectly in the scriptures, loving his Father wholeheartedly is now ours. And all our unrighteousness was given to him. And that is us, our new identity. We are righteous. 2 Peter 3.13, the verse prior to what we read this morning. But according to his promises, we are waiting for the new heavens, new earth, in which righteousness dwells. And this is the grace we get to look forward to. One day, God will take what is earth. This creation that's groaning for something greater in heaven where things are the way they ought to be. And he's going to slam them together and create something beautiful that our minds cannot even dare to imagine. Where the righteousness that's ascribed to us will be full and beautiful. Where our bodies will be fully glorified and we'll enjoy a world we can't even imagine in eternity. Where we're fully reconciled to one another and to our God. Peter. Is inviting us to grow in this, to grow, to increase, to enlarge, to have a passionate pursuit of this. If we're to move forward in the gospel, if we're move forward in godliness and grow in God's word, we need to move forward in the grace Jesus has given us, to divide into it, to get obsessed with it, to lose ourselves in it, to meditate on it day and night, to rehearse it until it pours out of our pores until it just emanates from within us. This is the work Jesus constantly does in us. What I find encouraging about this letter is when we do do this, we will find ourselves growing more and more in God's word, growing more and more in godliness. And maybe like William Carey, at the end of our life, when he was passing away, he had this to say. He had the goal to say this. A month before he died, he woke up one morning and said, God, I think I've done everything you've asked me to do. And then he passed away. Oh my gosh, look at his life. He did do everything God wanted him to do. God has chores for us. And Peter can't wait to see how you lean in on his spirit, the spirit of Jesus, and watch Jesus grow you and change you so that at the end of your life, as you walk and forward momentum of the gospel, you can rest in peace knowing you've accomplished What Jesus has given you to do. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I know I'm the chief of sinners in this room who continuously pulls up the parking brake, who confounds your work in the life of a son, a child. Father, we beg you to help us to live in gospel community where we're perpetuating growth and godliness and growth in your word and growth in your grace because ultimately, Jesus, we're leaning in on you and your forward momentum in our life. Teach us how to slow down and join you in that work to celebrate that work in us and to work in step with your spirit as you mold us and change us and give us eyes to see you, Jesus, the author of our salvation, the perfecter of our salvation, the one who even now in his throne room not only receives our worship but prays for us, intercedes for us, changes us, loves us, enjoys us. Jesus, help us to treasure you, to dive into your grace, that we may be propelled forward and have a blast watching you work through us in this world. We pray this in your blessed name, Jesus.